I don't know exactly when I bought and read Stephen Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty. I do know, however, that I bought it twice. I bought the paperback many years ago and thoroughly enjoyed it, marking it up with tons of highlights, yellow, orange, and pink, which is my want. But then I decided I wanted the whole New Studies in Biblical Theology series in which this book appears. I wanted it in Logos Bible Software so I could search it. So I sold the paper book and bought it again digitally along with the whole set. I was just going back through Dominion and Dynasty in preparation for today's Bible Study Magazine podcast interview with Dr. Dempster, the author, and I was taken again by his blend of academic ability, faithful listening to the Bible as God's Word, and his mix of macro and micro level insight into Scripture. I think you'll feel the same. Listen in on my conversation with Dr. Stephen Dempster. It's my privilege to have on the Bible Study Magazine podcast today, Dr. Stephen Dempster. And long ago, I stopped trying to list out all the accomplishments of my very accomplished guests, and instead I've asked them what I think is a more important question that does lead to them sharing some of their accomplishments, the things the Lord has done through them. My first question for you, Dr. Dempster, is how do you serve the body of Christ? Well, I try to serve the body of Christ by study and research and teaching. I'm involved in, uh, I was involved in 37 years teaching at uh, Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick uh, in Canada. Um, and I was involved in teaching the Old Testament particularly and uh, the biblical languages plus ancient history. Um, and Crandall is a Christian university and so we serve particularly um, Christians, it is a Baptist school, but we serve Christians in um, in Canada, and uh, and so we would have a a, a group. Uh, I'd say uh, in terms of percentage, maybe sixty percent Christian, forty percent non-Christian. And uh, so I've been there for thirty-seven years and uh, taught Scripture there, and it's been a, a tremendous privilege. I've also uh, teach. Uh, part-time as an adjunct at various places like uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary in Toronto uh, and also Westminster Theological College in or Centre in England. And so I, I, I've, I've been in various places such as uh, uh, China um, and I just got back from Sudan. Um, but uh, yeah, so so in India as well, I, I've been in and I, I was involved teaching as a and more of a as a consultant with Wycliffe Bible translators in Cameroon uh, in Africa, so uh, yeah, so those are I, I try to serve and right now as a, as a as emeritus professor, I'm involved in writing uh, commentaries and writing articles on biblical theology mainly. And I think that key little word emeritus is what gave rise to the comment you made to me before we hit record here that now that you're sort of retired, although still quite active, you get to read books that you want to read instead of books that you have to read. That's exactly so right. tell me, tell me, what are you reading right now that you wouldn't have gotten to read otherwise? What's on your shelf? Yeah, well, what I was reading, um, uh, I just finished reading uh, when I was in Sudan and I, I was reading Carl Truman's book, uh, 
the uh, triumph of the modern self. So I'm interested in uh, kind of those kinds of issues, but as a scholar in a sort of discipline, I never would get the opportunity to really delve into them very deeply. Yeah, one of the reasons I felt that I was not called to the kind of scholarship that you're doing, but called to enjoy it and use it and popularize it, was that I just could not make myself stay in my lane. I had to read books like that. When I read The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, it was just excellent. But I borrow from the work of people like you, uh, the, the hard work in scripture. And before I get going on more questions, I just have to say a little thank you for your classic little book. I think I'm right in calling it a classic, Dominion and Dynasty, that's in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series. I don't have a physical copy. I sold all my NSBT series volumes so I could buy them with my own money, by the way, in Logos Bible software, but I've got it up on the screen behind me. Yeah. Did you do that book? I don't know. Was it about 2001? How long has it been? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, the the the, um, the ideas for the book came as a result of a sabbatical I took in, I think it was around 1996. And in that sabbatical, I, I had the time, actually, instead of the, you know, constant preparation where you're always close up to the text and you're dealing with it, to actually read uh, the Hebrew Bible uh, through a number of times. And uh, as I was looking at it, I was seeing the big picture as opposed to the individual trees. And so I began to really think uh, in terms of the New Testament's exegesis, because I had been taught um, when I was at the University of Ta uh, Toronto Graduate School that basically the New Testament writers distorted the text. They weren't interested in looking at... Um, they were interested in proof texting. Essentially, they already had their mind up. And so when they looked at the Old Testament, they they just picked up particular texts. But as I reflected on the texts uh, of the Old Testament in terms of their larger context, I was able to see that no, those so-called proof texts were actually windows into a whole co larger context. And as a result of that larger context, uh, I really was able to see um, where the uh, how Jesus could say things like, uh, you know, all the scriptures uh, speak of me, you know, when he talked about the law, the prophets and the Psalms. So so I was able to, uh, you know, look at these little texts and from these texts, uh, um, uh, see a whole larger context evoked. So, for example, uh, when you look at uh, uh, the uh, the example of Jesus in the wilderness with the um, with the temptations and every time jesus refutes the tempter with a word from deuteronomy uh, jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days um, and israel was in the wilderness for 40 years and you see this whole idea of the importance of um, this whole old testament context being evoked where israel tested god in the wilderness and failed and now jesus the true Israelite, in a sense, the, the Son of God is being tested, and he is responding all the time with the Word of God, rather than rather than testing God himself. Uh, so you see these kinds of um, um, patterns, I think, uh, as, you, as you look at the big picture. And one of the images that I loved uh, uh, is, uh, is that whole idea of Mount Rushmore. If you're up close to Mount Rushmore, you really don't see things the way right. they ought to. 
But when you draw back, you're able to see it. And I really do think that it's that drawing back which is absolutely important. We do get up close, but we also have to draw back. And so, uh, and so it was that time where I was able to study. Um, and, uh, and, and it was a very crucial spiritual time in my life, too, because in that sabbatical, my father died. And uh, I always think that uh, these kinds of times, of, it was a real spiritual crisis for me, because at the time, uh, I was 40 years old, my dad was 70. Uh, and now in the, in the space of that time, in, it's almost been 30 years since then. Um, but I remember um, uh, looking at a picture of my dad, uh, uh, well, actually looking at him in his bed, and he was 70 years old, and he was, his body was being racked with cancer. And looking up at a photo above the bed, and in that photo, my dad was 40 and I was 10. Hmm. And now I was 40 and he's 70. And now I'm in that situation. And it, it really, I was really confronted, I think, with death and mortality and with wow. the truth of the faith. And, uh, and I was able to see a lot more clearly, I think, uh, spiritually. Uh, right. So those, right. I, I, those combination of uh, a kind of a, a spiritual enlightenment with this big picture really helped me to to write that book and, and in many ways my uh, my parents had talked about uh tell me that there was a song we used to sing as kids tell me the old old story and uh and i realized that this the, the many stories of scripture yes, are one yes. larger story yeah that that realization came to me in 2003 when i took old testament theology in seminary and I've said on the podcast actually numerous times now, it was one of those gestalt moments when suddenly you are opened up with a new paradigm, a new view on scripture. I don't ever remember in my life taking a bigger single leap in my understanding mm -hmm. of scripture. Learning the biblical languages, you know, might vie for that spot, but really not because that usually does just give you one more twig here, one more twig here. Over time, it accumulates a lot of, you know, useful uh, information about scripture. But the biggest leap I took was that, you know, big story view. And you're, you absolutely did that in your book, Dominion and Dynasty, which I read around that time. And it was so enlightening because over and over I'm thinking, okay, I just never really did buckle down and ask myself, how does this little story relate to the big story? You were such a help there. And when I've gone back to your book, and it's not that many books that I've read all the way through and then gone back to repeatedly, yours is one of them. I'm looking for those connecting points. They've been so helpful. Now, what we're talking about here, I think you would agree, is biblical theology. At least that's a label that has often been used to describe this kind of big picture look at the Bible. I've been asking every guest on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, season three, whose theme is biblical theology, how would you define biblical theology? Yeah, I would define it as the theology, not only the theology of the Bible, which I think should be, uh, you know, everyone's theology in a sense when they're looking at scripture. But I, I would define it as um, the development of um, um, the development, historical development and progression through time of uh, the theological ideas in the Bible. So uh, I had a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's more like a, a mentor to some degree, who wrote, uh, who was famous biblical theology quote was from acorn to oak tree. 
so that yes. when you see these developments in the Bible, in the Old Testament, they, they happen gradually, and then they, they just simply expand and flower into this, uh, this huge tree. But it's a gradual development so that you're able to, uh, to see these kinds of things. And, uh, and so I, I like that, um, I like that the, the, the temporal uh, progression of, um, um, I guess, the DNA of the Bible being uh, flowering out into its full growth in the New Testament. Right, right. Now, in this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, I'm discussing a lot of Bible specifics, but you did such a great job with your introductory material in Dominion and Dynasty that I just went back through, sometimes called Prolegomena, that I want to spend some time there in this interview. So, for example, a lot of the tools that you use as a biblical theologian are, if I may say so, literary tools, the tools of literary criticism. And indeed, that seems to be the appeal of biblical theology for some people. They can describe the text's literary features, often with great skill, but without bothering about whether the words they are examining are God's words or not. But you said the inescapable fact is that the Bible is also God's word. That is, it is a literature and must be first understood before its message can be heeded. In the words of Rabbi Ishmael, you quoted, the Torah uses language as human beings do. In other words, this is again you, while the Bible may be God's word, it is not an esoteric heavenly language, but simply a message expressed in ordinary human speech. I'm reading a long quote because it was so good. You said, before the message can be obeyed, it must be first heard in the same way that ordinary speech is heard, with the attention being paid to the rules of syntax, form, and structure. So, Here's my question. What happens to our Bible study if we don't do what you describe in this quote? Well, I, I think in a way um, a, a number of things can happen. You, you can easily collapse your own context and your own understanding with the Bible's, under, with, with the Bible's understanding, and you right. fail to really hear it. And one of the classic examples I I give for this is the the whole expression eye for eye tooth for tooth which has been so encrusted with interpretation over the years that when we hear it today we think of uh, Shakespeare in the Merchant of Venice who goes for his pound of flesh and we see it as very barbaric but when you actually go back into the biblical context the historical context and see exactly what it's dealing with you see uh, the stress on on humanity. I mean, this is a, a liberating law. I mean, because what would happen in that context, if I kill your brother, you kill my family. So right. it's clearly a limitation on these things. And the second thing is, um, is when you read it in the context of the ancient Near Eastern laws, and you read a lot of these ancient Near Eastern laws, there's all kinds of mutilation. And that mutilation uh, doesn't occur in the Bible, perhaps in one example, but it's a uh, it's, it's understood metaphorically. It means the crime, uh, the punishment must equal the crime. So you see all these kinds of things in their context, and, uh, in this, and you, you don't distort the meaning, you bring it out. In fact, I was just uh, teaching uh, the other night uh, when, with respect to ancient Near Eastern law, and there is a, there's a, a lot of laws which people look at from our context, and they see them as ab- absolutely horrific. But when you actually look at the law, and it was the passage uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21, verse 10 and following, where if you are in, in war, 
and you uh, uh, see a, a young woman uh, after right. you defeat the enemy and you want to marry her, you've got to bring her into your home. You've, she's got to cut her hair. She's got to cut her nails and she's got to put on mourning clothes for her parents for one month. And then if you wish to marry her, you can. If you don't, you have to give her her freedom. That's now, how my wife and I got together, actually. Yeah, that's, yeah I, I haven't really shared that lot with too many people. And I, I'll have to share that, uh, your, your own testimony. But, uh, but, but um, when I, when I, when I, uh, when I, you mentioned that, what happens in war? I mean, today, I mean, it's, it's rife. I, I get back from Africa. We see all the situations in various places. Uh, and it's not just it happens in Europe. It happens everywhere. Rape is just simply and rape and murder take right. place all over the place. What right. is this doing? It's basically trying to work within the society to uh, to uh, pr uh, protect women. Prevent really, abuses. Yeah. Yeah. So so, I mean, there's just simply one. These are just a few examples of uh, of, you know, you've got to be able to do the hard work of looking at the language, what it's actually saying and what it's not saying. Uh, for example, in that same context of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, if you actually read through the Book of the Covenant, you will see in, incredibly uh, the, uh, the word I is used of God a number of times, uh, where this never happens in ancient Near Eastern laws. And every time I is used, almost every time I, God is speaking through the first person, it's because of compassion. You know, you uh, if if someone uh, uh, uses uh, his coat as collateral for a loan, uh, you must yeah. give it back to him at night because he will complain to me and I will hear him for mm. I am gracious. And that's mm. just simply one example. And you this this idea of of the divine voice actually speaking in these in these laws, which are almost all in the third person. Are, I just find them amazing. But uh, yeah. but yeah, I would just simply say that we have a lot of examples, uh, particularly with the, uh, the hatred uh, that's out there today uh, with respect to the Old Testament, um, right. not just not just in the uh, in the general culture, but also even in the church, uh, that, that it has to be read first to be understood. And you Excellent. don't really understand it unless you look at it in its context. Yeah, you know, when I read writers like you who combine that, you know, rich ability to do the analysis, to look at the twigs, to cite some obscure, you know, uh, Akkadian or Ugaritic cognate that helps us understand a given tiny little poetic line or half of a verset in Job, but then can also pull back out and show the big picture. And you can relate those two views, the, the tiny microscopic view and the big, you know, U2 spy plane or, you know, satellite yeah. view. Yeah. I, I find that to be incredibly, incredibly valuable. There are people who have either one of those gifts, but you tend to put them together and combine it with the heart that wants to uh, follow the Lord. You're, you're seeing these as God's words. I want to talk about something else that's in your intro to Dominion and Dynasty. And about 20 years ago, if I recall correctly, about half my lifetime ago, there was a lot of talk of modernism versus postmodernism. I feel like that's kind of settled down. I think that evangelical Christians who love and believe the Bible have basically 
gathered the thing that you say in there, which is that the modernists' error is that they think they can approach the Bible straight without any subjectivity, and the postmodernist error is that they think no one can escape subjectivity enough to really approach the Bible as God's word truly. Um, they're always only going to see their faces reflected back up to them from the bottom of the well to use the Schweitzer image. Mm-hmm. But you write, and I'm going to quote you again, human beings can know truth because it is revealed, but it is always accommodated to their understanding and always filtered through their own particular context. Factors of culture, place, time, society, education, experience, the effects of sin on the mind, they all color the truth. And you used a little you in color uh, like Canadians do. So, And I would add tradition to that list of effects on my ability to read the text. So my interpretive tradition does color my reading. Here's my question. How do I know when to stick with my tradition and when to allow the Bible to correct it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there's a number of things I would say with respect to that is is always you need to be uh, uh, in, in interaction with the sources, okay? Uh, and I'm thinking of the primary sources of the Bible. You always have to be uh, in that kind of uh, interaction with it. Um, and also, so and so, there's always this uh, fresh springs, as it were. Now, there is the issue of my, you know my my conditioning and everything else, and my place in society and my culture, and and this is why uh, I always remember a, a friend of mine who was a linguist at the University of Toronto, and uh, he was saying that uh, uh, there was a position that was available for teaching theology at this particular institution. And they wanted a Canadian, you know, to do it, uh, and uh, because it was a, you know, it was a Canadian institution. And he said, "We don't need just a Canadian. We need an African. We need a Korean. We need we need all of these people around the table so that we can um, uh, the blind spots of each of us can be compensated for by the group." So I think you should be, and this is one of the things that really touched me. I was teaching a course in uh, in prophets uh, just two years ago, and I hadn't really been reading outside um, Western the, the Western Academy about uh, about prophecy. And th- one of my students brought that out. Well, he says, "Where are these other people?" And I said, "It was it was to deal with one particular issue, which was predictive prophecy." And I said. I said, actually, since I had spent uh, some time in Africa uh, and worked not with people who were writing, but people who were living the faith there, I said, these people don't have any problem in believing in predictive prophecy because they see miracles all uh, all over the place. But I guess one of the points I would simply say is that you need to uh, get outside your culture to read as well and to interact with people. Uh, and going to a place like Africa, for example, makes things uh, very real to you, like uh, like demons, <laughs> um, hmm. like uh, like spiritual forces. Uh, in fact, one of my African friends said, "We're going to really find it hard to be secularized over here because we just feel so." so uh, so much the spiritual the spiritual realities of life uh, the other thing i would say is is so read widely outside your area or outside have people uh, uh, that you'll read that are in on this particular topic but 
that don't come from your culture. The second, uh, the third point I would simply say is this. What Calvin says is knowledge is born of obedience. And as you read the text and as you uh, come to understand the text, I really do think that um, you get a clearer understanding of the text as you're praying, as you are, um, as you're obeying. Um, I, I just found in my own experience that uh, obedience leads to uh, more of the reality of God. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know one example, particular when I was at graduate school, God was becoming more and more unreal to me. And, uh, and as a result of a, a something that I did for someone, where I went out of my way to help them because I believed I needed to, um, it, 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 my faith became a lot more real. And Bonhoeffer says that, you know, people complain about the lack of reality of God. He says, because they're not obeying him and they're not following him. Uh, yeah. When they do that, they find that it become God becomes more real. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, those are just some thoughts I would have to say about uh, trying to get out of your box, as it were. Yeah, um, you have, you, you're making me think so many things. Uh, I'll try to limit it to just a few here. One is we had on the cover of Bible Study Magazine, Esau Macaulay and his book, Reading While Black, a couple of issues ago. And I wrote the cover story, even though I am empowered to hire others to do it, because I really enjoyed the book. And one of the reasons I did is that he did what you described. And I initially came to the book with some fear because I have seen people who appeal to the existence of other readings of the Bible from other cultures as a means of relativizing the read that I come to and saying, they've got their truth, you've got yours. And I don't think God is stuck speaking to me only through my cultural context and stuck speaking to Africans or Asians or what have you only through theirs. What I'd like to see, what I expect to see is that somebody in another cultural context brings complementary truth. And Macaulay absolutely did that. He just very simply showed how growing up in the African-American community in the U.S., he read the Exodus narratives through different eyes, eyes that Mm. I would never read it through unless Mm. I had his help that absolutely Mm. complemented my own read of the text. His analysis Mm. of those narratives and then his use of them to try to understand Romans 13, um, I thought was especially insightful. Second, I was just speaking myself at a Christian college and they had an image for their theme that was of a a human body, you kind of abstracted and here's the brain and here's the heart and they had an arrow pointing from the head to the heart. And I wrote my dissertation to push back against the priority of the intellect view in which I think Westerners kind of tend to grow up in it unless we've been more influenced by the romantics. We tend to think as Christians in the West, our head, our reason has got to tell our hearts what to feel. And I said, there are times when that is true, but I went and put another arrow on top of it in front of everybody to show, no, it goes the other way too. And you can't neatly separate Mm -hmm. head and heart or um, Mm -hmm. my thoughts and my obedience, just like Mm -hmm. there's a relationship between looking at the tiny details of the text and zooming out to look at the big picture, kind of this hermeneutical spiral where each informs Mm -hmm. the other. Likewise, my 
my analysis of the text, which is a head-oriented task, mm. informs my obedience, which in turn informs my understanding. That seems to be the way that the Lord has made us. Am I accurately reflecting or echoing yes. what you just said? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I think, for example, of the story of the rich young ruler, um, if he had obeyed, um, I think he would have seen everything in a new light. You know, Absolutely. It's, uh, it's just that he couldn't get over his wealth as an idol. Um, but if he had given it up for Christ, uh, he would have seen it in a completely new way. And I, I, and I, I think that, yeah. I literally listened to that story this morning in the shower. Now everybody knows uh, in my New King James Version audio Bible. And those words struck me anew. I, I actually just before that, of course, listened through all the prophets. So I'm just in Matthew now, but the last a couple months have been prophets. That's the way if you just go all the way through, as you well know, that's what it is. So I, I want to talk about the place of the prophets in a biblical theological view of scripture. I'm going to quote you again. You said, the poetic literature, which breaks the main line of narrative from Genesis through Kings, provides significant theological commentary before the narrative is resumed again in the book of Daniel. To read some of this commentary, you said, such as the prophets, in isolation from the larger text, the bigger story, is inevitably to distort its message as one of doom and gloom or to typecast the prophets as preachers of repentance. But you said to read them in their literary context is to see that they reflect on the past, the experience of the exile as judgment, the cutting down of the tree to a stump, while also looking forward to the future and its possibilities. So the shoot that springs up from the stump that Isaiah talks about. So talk to me, please, Dr. Dempster, about the big picture that I should have as I come to listen to the prophets in the shower each morning. Yeah, yeah, well, um, that's great. You're listening to them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I would simply say, um, when I look at that big picture, uh, if you read the narrative up to the, the point where the prophets are, um, you end up with Second Kings 25, 27 to 30, and you see the complete disaster of the exile, not the, the, the beginning, well, I, I guess you're midway through the exile. Um, and uh, the disaster of the northern kingdom being destroyed, the southern kingdom being destroyed, all hope seems lost. Um, but there have been points of uh, hope in that, uh, in that material, uh, such as the covenant with David, uh, and, and throughout you get mention of this. And then the last four verses, I just wrote a paper uh, called The End of History and the Last Man, which is a, uh, a riff on Francis Foyakama's book. Um, but looking at, uh, this is the midpoint of the Hebrew Bible, essentially. David Friedman has shown that. That's uh, the end of Second Kings is the midpoint of the Hebrew Bible, because the Hebrew Bibles, uh, as m many of your listeners know, is the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The Torah plus the former prophets is the first half. The latter prophets plus the writings is the latter half. And so right in the middle, you get the story of uh, the king of uh, uh, Judah uh, released from prison by uh, Amal Marduk. And uh, he's exalted to a position in, uh, and brought before uh, uh, Amal Marduk and is given a ration until the day of his death, essentially. And what is this? But I, 
argue, when you look at the prophets which follow, the latter prophets which follow, they talk about a new David that's coming. They talk, as you as you mentioned, the shoot of Jesse uh, coming up, or the, a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. You get this world ruler that's going to come and bring peace to the nations. Uh, he's going to be on the throne of David, and his uh, rule is going to have no end. Uh, the lion is going to lie down with the lamb and all that kind of thing. It's absolutely clear to me uh, when I read it in that context that they see this. Uh, you have to see this exile as not the last word, but you have to see Jehoiakim as this shoot uh, that's coming up. And that what's involved is we have to look forward. Uh, God has, has judged his people. God has brought about the fulfillment of a lot of these prophecies, which many of these latter prophets spoke about, particularly in the book of Kings. But he's, it's not his last word. His last word is one of incredible hope. Uh, and so we need to hold on to that. In fact, I just did a, a presentation on uh, predictive prophecy, essentially, um, and noted in the former prophets, which we regarded as historical books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, you get, um, these are called prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible. They're called the former prophets. One of the reasons I believe it's a prophetic view of history based on Deuteronomy, which is precedes them, which says, if you follow the Torah, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be judged. But yet sometime in the future, uh, if you repent in exile, God will circumcise your heart and you'll be able to fulfill the Torah. Uh, and so what is all that about? Well, if you read the former prophets over and over and over, you get these predictions, these predictions, these predictions that happen some days, sometime the very next day, sometimes 20 years later, etc. You have over and over the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so that when you come to the latter prophets and you see these future prophecies of future uh, restoration, you can be uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that, in fact, they're going to be fulfilled, too. And so that when they get the return, it's not certainly the glory that's expressed in these latter prophets about, you know, uh, God, uh, all glory, all the glory of God being shown to the whole world. But it is a, a down payment of this kind of thing. And they're expecting something um, that uh, creates the kind of uh, melting pot and uh, tinderbox and anticipation that you have in the in at the beginning of the New Testament period. So uh, so yeah, so it's a hope. I would say it's hope. Uh, the stress on hope. These things are going to happen just as they happened before. They're going to happen in the future. And I have of course, when, Je when Jesus comes, he's saying, you know, let the, uh, you know, you can summarize his his message in these words, repent, which is a prophetic word. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All these things are ready to be fulfilled. I, I have bet my bottom dollar that the prophets were right to recognize that they were in the middle of the story, not only looking mm -hmm. back on the sins of Israel and condemning those sins and often delivering judgment, and also the sins of the nations, by the way, which kind of struck me mm -hmm. as I was mm -hmm. listening through wow, like in a way, this local God, as it would have been seen at the time, you know, by other nations is arrogating to himself the spot of telling the other nations what to do. We know that it's because he created those other nations and that the gods that they 
mm-hmm. worship are not gods. Uh, but they're right also to look forward to see that this cannot be the end of mm-hmm. the story. And you're as you listen to the Old Testament, and it, it kind of does go on and on when you just go straight from January through November. It took me that many months listening at a steady pace to get into the New Testament. You're dragged down thinking, you know, Israel just fails and fails and fails. And even at the very end, here's Nehemiah. The Literally the last thing to happen is him tearing the hair out of these yeah, Jewish men who so. still don't get it and are disobeying. Yeah, so thank yeah. thank the Lord that that isn't the end of the story. And in fact, that was something else I was going to mention to you. You join many other writers that I respect and from whom I've learned much uh, in calling Scripture a redemptive story that aims at the restoration of a lost destiny for the human race and creation. So restoration there is a key word that I've been focusing on for a number of years, restoration of God's intended purposes for creation. So I kind of want to ask you an odd question. If most of the time we should be wanting to align ourselves you know, with the goal of Christ to restore God's rule and thereby restore creation's destiny, you know, he's going to rule until all things are put under his feet. Why do we wear clothes? I'm not saying I would do this, but wouldn't, you know, going without clothes bring us back to the garden and therefore to God's original intent for mankind? And I suppose that's a very specific and hopefully a little bit humorous way of asking, you know, what exactly gets restored in what the Bible calls the palingenesis, the regeneration? What What is the end of the story? Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't read much about... Uh... You do, uh, you do read a lot about uh, the significance of clothes. For example, uh, when Joseph is exalted, he's, his old clothes are taken off and his new clothes are pl- placed on when he's brought into the Pharaoh. And also Jehoiakim is given a new set of clothes when he's released from prison. And you get this idea of clothes being used uh, in terms of the New Testament where they're invited to the wedding banquet and there's an individual who's wearing his old clothes and he doesn't wear the uh, the host's clothes. I listened to that this very morning also. Yeah, yeah, which is an interesting passage because that 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 banquet is for the good and the bad. But the only one that's thrown out is the uh, is the one that's not wearing the wedding clothes that, that are given, I assume, by the host for everyone. Um, and of course, you have uh, clearly uh, clothes used... Um, symbolically by Paul when he talks about putting on the new man and being clothed with forgiveness and all of these kinds of things uh, in, in, uh, in Ephesians and Colossians. Um, I, I, I know there is this, this uh, view, you see it, uh, the rabbis had this view that Adam and Eve uh, were clothed in light. They were clothed in light. And when, uh, and when they, uh, uh, when they sinned, they lost the light. And you see it uh, to some degree in the story of Moses, remember, when he uh, has this uh, experience yes. talking to God and his face shines and he has to put a veil on his face. And you see it also in the, uh, in the transfiguration, of course, where it doesn't, it talks about his clothes shining too, but the whole of his appearance shines. And I wonder if that's the idea of... Uh, being clothed with light that uh, that we will uh, um, yeah because as we shining as lights in a dark place it won't be a dark place anymore but I, I don't know I mean uh, clothes the clothing does seem to be significant there they 
they clothe themselves as a result of their sin, but then God clothes them, you know. Hmm. And I think that's uh, I, I, you know, that, that's the first act of violence in the Bible, actually, uh, um, where God actually clothes them. And what if I assume He just didn't create the clothes, but He killed the animals and got to, right. took the skins, um, which comes to this idea of being clothed. Uh, with righteousness, uh, I, I don't know. I, uh, it's a great question. Um, you have to also th- wonder if we'll all be vegetarians, too. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, there's a, there's all those other issues. But but I think when we uh, when we look at the idea of culture, um, and you've you know you 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 can see this in other areas too. I think when Adam and Eve were given this uh, this this idea of bringing God's uh, kingdom to the world, I think that would have, you know, someone has suggested that one of the differences between culture and nature is the difference between a river and a canal, you know. Um, and I think that they would have built cities. I mean, if if things had, if, if the fall had not taken place, there would have been all of these cultural developments that would right. have taken place because we are human beings and we're told to go out and develop. We would have had to build houses. We would have had to do all of these kinds of things. We wouldn't have not just lived in a sort of um, like uh, an ideal, uh, idyllic situation where we uh, are just sitting there um, doing nothing uh, and everything's happening to us. You know, Uh, I don't think that's because you have work before the fall too. They have to serve and protect and keep. So they've got to develop this, but uh, yeah, about clothing. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't. I, there's not there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just don't know. That's okay. You know, I, I, what I find instructive is that your impulse in answering that question was to do a biblical theology of clothes off the top of your head. You're not just saying here's all these passages that have to do with clothes, but you kept at least you know, in a minimal way during a brief conversation about it, trying to tie the uh, the passages to the overall story of Scripture. And I have to think, if there is a sufficient revelation in the Bible to really answer my question beyond some of these initial stabs that you're making here, that would be the way to do it. There's got to be a way to fit this uh, this question into that overall story, to detect what how does the Bible develop the theme? And I, I find that interesting and instructive you, you do that. You mentioned here Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and I actually wanted to ask you about that. You know, your, your, little, uh, your little move there, um, which, which I think is really demanded by the text, but can sometimes for me make me worry that I'm speculating too much. Okay, what you did was you said that creation mandate, which which you also called a blessing, of course, and you brought this out, something I was just teaching myself at a church uh, in Ohio. I said, Genesis 1.26 says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. These, depending on how you count, four or five imperative verbs are more like the quote-unquote imperative verb when my wife says to me, have a nice day, you know, as I'm leaving, you know, she's not giving me a command and it would be a total mistake for me to turn around and say, will you quit telling me what to do? Have a nice day, okay, there's another thing for me to put on my to-do list, thanks a lot, I'm already really busy. No, it's a blessing, it's almost like a prayer. So I'm kind of bouncing this off of you, um, seeing if you agree with this. 
I sure hope so because I've written it and preached it on numerous occasions. The, the fact that God makes it a blessing is the explanation for why so many people who have no thought of God, who have suppressed their knowledge of God, given them innately, still end up doing these things. They're still fruitful and multiplying, filling, their, filling the earth, subduing it, and having dominion over it. Nonetheless, you've also got lots of fallen people, including professing Christian people and true Christian people, who are also, at times in their lives at least, running against the grain of some of these uh, commands, whether they're being lazy and not subduing and having dominion, whether they've decided we're married, yes, but we don't want any kids because they're just too much of an expense and hassle. Um, God's like, you know, okay, this was a blessing, not exactly a command, but come on, like, it's a blessing, go do it. That's the way I've preached this passage. And I, let me draw together one more thread and then get you to reflect on these things. You said that just now the dominion mandate, this, this command to subdue and have dominion, would have continued on for sure in an unfallen world. And the very kind of work that we see Adam and Eve doing in the garden would necessarily have expanded into all the kinds of legitimate vocations that we see in culture now. Now they're twisted by the fall. In that case, they wouldn't have been, but we would still need engineers to build bridges and presumably bankers to stash cash, you know, in a bank somewhere and uh, economists and teachers and, uh, you know, everything else that isn't generated by the fall we, we would have needed. That was a huge sort of not question question that I didn't plan on asking you, but I that's the way I've been talking. And some of it's been inspired by what you've written. Can I get an amen, or would you clarify or correct any of what I've just said? No, I would I would say an amen because I think uh, Christians um, have such a narrow view of um, of their faith, uh, so that they uh, they think that um, simply um, um, sharing the faith, for example, with someone uh, is truly uh, being faithful. Whereas not doing a great job and whatever I'm doing is just God's not really concerned about that. But you know, um, I, I really think you know, going back to your point about uh, non-Christians doing these things, we can learn a lot from that. But um, what what I think, for example, with the whole issue of climate change and uh, the eco ecological problem and that kind of thing, I really do think that are we stewards? Or are we, in, uh, right. regardless, God has given us this, this ability, okay? The issue is, are we going to be tyrants uh, and destroy the world around us? Or are we going to be stewards doing, uh, uh, preserving, developing all of these things to the glory of God? I mean, when you look at Genesis 1, I mean, these commands, it's clearly uh, the world is... Um, needs to be uh, um, uh, uh, developed, okay? It needs to be developed. It's a raw material in many ways, and God wants us to have dominion over it. And, and these words which are used are, are very forceful words. In some other contexts, they have very negative con connotations like um, uh, subduing for slavery or war or that kind of thing. But but what God wants us to do, it's, there's a kind of untameness to the world or wildness to the world out there that God wants to develop for us to develop for his glory. And I would say that's where this is the reason for calling, you know, my calling, uh, my calling, whether, as you say, as an engineer 
whether it's a teacher, whether it's a medical doctor, whether it's all of these kinds of things, I am called to, uh, to be a servant and f- find the, the ways in which God, for example, can, can help us deal with the COVID situation with vaccines. You know, um, this, is, this is the work of God. This is subduing. This is developing. Uh, um, but are we going to do it as tyrants? Or are we going to just think that God's not interested in that, and what God is only interested in us is sharing our faith? Right. No. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it all comes back to um, to living a life of um, of doing the will of God. You know. Uh, yeah. I always remember uh, a book I read a long time ago by Oz Guinness, and uh, he talks about. It's called The Call. It's really wor- worth reading. But he talks about one of his um, uh, ancestors, uh, not that distant, um, was uh, co- thinking of committing suicide. And he was walking down a lane in the country and he saw the um, incredible uh, precision that a farmer was making on plowing a field and how incredibly uh, accurate it was, each of the furrows, etc. And that gave him that gave him just an inspiration, you know, where he saw this man who was trying to fulfill his calling as a farmer doing such a good job. He said that that gave him a reason to live. And I think that, uh, and Oz Guinness was reflecting on that book in The Call. Um, so, yeah, I, I would certainly affirm what you're saying, brother. So I grew up in a tradition for which I'm very thankful, um, a Baptistic uh, Bible-focused tradition, and I was taught to read my Bible faithfully and carefully, and yet there was this little passage on page one, the Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that you in your book at least once called the dominion mandate that we've been talking about, and I don't ever remember hearing it mentioned. I certainly don't remember it being connected to any of the vocations. If my memory serves me, and it really might not, I think the passage was sort of treated as something that God gave to Adam and Eve that was really of minimal relevance to us. Then in grad school, I was working as a Bible curriculum author at a Christian textbook publisher, one of uh, the top ones, and I became acquainted with another tradition in which our biblical theology became our biblical worldview and in which the dominion mandate was used as a truly cultural mandate. And it's it's out of that blessing and mandate that all of human culture and vocation has arisen like we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a biblical theologian yourself, um, are you truly comfortable with that use of what you would call the dominion mandate? What, what you called the dominion mandate? I mean, would you be willing to call it a cultural mandate? Yeah, I guess when I think of culture, uh, oftentimes I think of something which is um, not transcendent. Um, you know, it's uh, it's confined to a particular time, but yet at the same time, God calls us to work within our various cultures. I uh, I think that mandate. Uh, uh, yeah, that mandate. I, I don't mind the cultural mandate, but I think it. Uh, it it may uh, uh, I don't know it may relativize it um, um, and uh, I'm not interested in that um, I, I guess it would be uh, wherever individuals are found okay in whatever location God 
places them, they have the um, mandate to develop uh, the creation to the glory of God. They will probably do it differently in different places and where different climates are. Um, but they have to do that. And, uh, and I think in some ways, um, you, you, uh, you see this uh, in the book of Revelation, for example, when they're all, when, when everyone is in glory in this new heavens and the new earth, there's someone from every tribe and nation there and every tongue. And those tongues are cultural elements, you know, and uh, and probably uh, the the different um, the different traditions within those cultures are cult, but they can all enrich and be part of a great uh, a great harmony, as it were, to the glory of God. Excellent. Yeah that that vision of what the Bible is doing and how to relate biblical theology to my overall worldview. Basically, that every worldview tells a big meta narrative, a grand story about the world, and biblical theology is focused on telling us the Christian story about the world. How how does the Bible progressively reveal truth, and what narrative comes out of it? That was one of those other Gestalt moments, not quite as big as seeing the whole Bible as one story, but another key moment in my own lifetime. Yeah. Which yeah, brings one... me to a final question for you, Doctor Dempster, and thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. Why did you name your book Dominion and Dynasty? Draw the threads well, of our discussion together by answering that question, yeah, would you please? Yeah, good question. Um, in fact, it originally was going to be Dominion, Dynasty, and David, actually, but they didn't like the alliteration. But I, I, I thought about it this way. Um, it, the creation uh, narrative, uh, I, I really believe that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, and this is royal dimension. And so, in a sense, a, a human beings, humanity, is really created to have its own dynasty, hu human dynasty, as it were, a line, as it were, of royal descent. And so that when um, when Luke, for example, traces gene Jesus's genealogy, he comes right back to Adam, who is a son of God. You know. Um, so I, I, and also the, the, the other point was that when God actually sends the Messiah, he sends him through a specific line. Uh, and that is what I want to bring, I would try to bring out through the line of David, uh, that this person was going to be a new David. Uh, and so it's that dynasty, Davidic dynasty, which actually leads to when we trust in the Messiah, we become uh, are able to call God our Father too, so that we are part of that royal heritage. Uh, and I think part of the, part of the uh, issue was I really stressed the importance of genealogy, where you see in Genesis the roots going back to uh, Adam and Eve, who are really the first king and queen of creation. Excellent, praise God! I love it when interviews end with a vision of the new creation, when revelation gets mentioned like you did a minute ago, you know, every tribe, kindred, and nation praising the lamb. I like it when there's sort of a narrative feel even to our discussion, I've, I've felt that today. You know, I wanna let everybody know that um, 
I'm not saying that my method of dating my wife, you know, that I mentioned earlier of capturing her and cutting her hair and all that and her fingernails. I'm not saying that's normative for anybody else. I think the Bible has multiple models. Her hair did grow out after a while, but her fingernails are still short because she's a gardener. She just never, she's always in the dirt and stuff. Okay. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to tell my story. That is a joke, everybody who's out there and listening land. But Dr. Dempster, thank you so much for your time coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. God bless you. Thank you. Dr. Dempster's Dominion Dynasty and David is a delight for dedicated divers into the divine declarations of scripture. Dual decades after its initial distribution, it demands to be more diligently disseminated. Get it in Logos Bible software, and you can, like me, both read it and search it like I've just been doing. It's well worth both reading and referencing. Dr. Dempster also wrote a great piece for Bible Study Magazine not all that long ago telling the entire story of the Old Testament. You can find a link in the show notes on YouTube to that issue and to the book he and I have just been discussing in this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I, Mark Ward, am the host of the podcast and editor of Bible Study Magazine, to which I invite you to subscribe with all dogged directness. 